Sometimes the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. Thanks again for finding your way over to the Back of the Range Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Adelberg, and this is Episode 5. Once again, special thanks as always to Mitch Phillips. Check him out at mpvoice.com. He does our intro work every week and is a big supporter of the show. Hope everyone has been having a great week so far and that everyone is staying healthy. I was one of the many unlucky ones to catch the flu that's been going around here in the United States, but I'm definitely on the mend. And this past Sunday was able to play my first round of golf of the year. Uh, I participated in a charity scramble for the PAP Corps, which benefits cancer research. They're part of the University of Miami's Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center, and they really do some great work. So if you're interested in helping out this charity, go ahead and visit papcorps.org. And I will include that link in the show notes of this episode. Also, just another reminder that we are on Instagram at the Back of the Range Podcast. If you still haven't subscribed, you can do so at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, and Google Play. My email address is ben at thebackoftherange.com. So if you have any suggestions or comments, please feel free to reach out. Also, share this podcast with your friends if you're enjoying it. This week's guest is Kevin Hammer from Boynton Beach, Florida. To say that golf is in his family's blood is a huge understatement. Kevin's dad? Yeah, he won on the PGA Tour and has been an instructor for over 40 years. His godfather? Yep, he won on the PGA Tour as well, and you've probably heard of him. And while Kevin didn't end up on the tour, he did become an AJGA Junior All-American, and he helped the University of Florida to two SEC championships and a national championship. He has several mid-am titles here in Florida, mixed team titles here in Florida, and when he's not playing the game, he's ensuring its future by donating his time to serve on the executive board of the Florida State Golf Association. We got into several topics ranging from the current state of the game, current state of country clubs and junior golf, and his philosophy on introducing the game to children. So, Kevin, thanks for supporting the podcast. Thanks for making time to join me here at the back of the range. Ben, thanks a lot for having me on your podcast. I look forward to uh, being on the back of the range podcast and and appreciate all you're doing for the game of golf. No, Kevin, really appreciate the time. So let's get started. Tell me about where you grew up, your introduction to the game, and your experiences as a junior golfer. I was born and raised in Boynton Beach and grew up at Delray Dunes golf club which is right across the street on golf road here in boynton beach and uh that was uh, where i grew up and uh my entire life until i went to college and then uh, out of college and got married and moved back to the area and married and children and moved into quail ridge country club which is right across the street and i'm quite sure you've played more rounds at quail ridge than i have in the last many years and so it's always good to see you out here uh enjoying the summer membership they uh as soon as that car as soon as that gate arm goes up and they let me in i'm like man i fooled him again oh it's great so <laughs> so obviously having the support of your family when you're playing golf as a kid is very important can you speak to the experience that you had not only having a solid foundation but a father who is a master instructor of the game Sure. I, I was very fortunate, you know, as a, it's the game of the, the game of golf is in our family blood. And, and, uh, my father uh, went to university of Florida and was a very good junior player, was run up in the junior amateur one year, went to Florida on a golf scholarship, was an all American at Florida and uh, then got out and played the tour for a few years and 
won one tour event. Uh, it was a team event. He won with Dave Stockton. It was called the Hagen Hague. And shortly after my mother and father figured out the tour life wasn't quite for them, uh, they got involved with a group that started uh, Delray Dunes and they were early investors in Delray Dunes. And, you know, 45 years later, he was uh, the director of golf there for an awfully long time. And now he still gives lessons and he's still living in the same house he uh, first built there in Delray Dunes. So, you know, through him, um, you know, they really never pressured me to play the game. It was just, we were always around the game. I grew up as a kid picking the range and mowing greens on the golf course and, you know, uh, working in the back room and, and playing golf when I could and getting a 30 second lesson from my father when he had time in between other member lessons. And it was a great way to grow up. Uh, the club was very uh, kind to me and to our family. And, uh, my godfather, Bob Murphy, who's one of my father's best friends, uh, had been in the club living there next door to us. So it was like a, another father figure right next door who was playing the tour and had a great amateur PGA Tour and Champions Tour career. So, uh, you know, a lot of people probably thought I was forced into the game, but it's quite the opposite. I just uh, grew around it and grew up loving it and grew up getting to know just about every facet of it through the two of them. And through the two of them and their their friends on tour, it was it was kind of like a revolving door of tour players, uh, some not very well known and, and some very well known that were always staying at the houses, either my father's house or Murph's house and uh, coming there to play or practice in the winter season. And, and so I just grew up around a lot of old tour stories and probably why I'm a bit partial to the older generation and the way they played the game and some of the camaraderie that they had, which is probably quite a bit different than what's out there now. So it's very fortunate and it's kind of been passed on to my daughter who enjoys the game and plays. We have three daughters and all of them can hit the ball, but one of them uh, who the oldest one has really taken to the game. And it's been fun to see her appreciate kind of all sides of the game, the history and the traditions, as well as, you know, trying to be a pretty good player on our own. I, I can't, and we're definitely going to get to your, uh, your daughter, Alexa's uh, current playing uh, status and career and, and where she is uh, going to college. We'll, we'll, we'll let that go until a little bit later in the episode, but uh, just getting back, I, I'm just thinking about what that must've been like as, as a kid, you know, you, you come in off the course uh, on, on a weekend and you're hitting balls. You're, you're, there's your God, you know, there's your godfather, Bob Murphy, who obviously been on tour, your dad's been on tour. And then who, who knows who's showing up each and every week, how much insight, how many stories, what could you glean off of their experiences I, I can't even imagine how many just, just sitting around, just listening to them go. Well, and that, that's what I'll always cherish. You know, some of the stories I can tell, some I can't tell. <laughs> but Oh, we, we only want you ones know. you can tell. So the ones you can't <laughs> tell, those are we'll leave that to people's imaginations. But, uh -huh. but you got to give me a good story about, I mean, you pick. There's got to be tons of them. Well, you know, just to, you could kind of paint the scene a little bit. But, uh, you know, in addition to just living there, Murph and my father hosted a pro-am there for over 40 years that benefited Bethesda Hospital, the community hospital. And they did that shortly after the club uh, started at Delray Dunes. And they, they did it really to advertise the club, to benefit the community. And for many, many years, there were couple thousand local spectators that would come out and it was uh so through that pro-am there was an additional host of many professionals coming in and out of there and from nicholas's to the players to the trevinos to the fuzzy zellers to the dave stocktons and you know the list goes on and on so i can some of my fondest memories are at the pro-am party at murph's house uh, you know which he was kind enough to host right there and cars are everywhere and in our yard and murph's yard next door and 
players are everywhere and everybody's shooting pool. And, and it was just a, a great, great scene. And a lot of the old pros would tell stories around the pool table. But if Murph, Murph was an incredible athlete um, in, in a body that didn't quite look like an athlete, if you know what I mean, <laughs> he, 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 went, he went to Florida on a baseball scholarship. He was a pitcher and a good one and kind of threw out his shoulder and had played very little golf. And, and uh, the college golf coach got a golf coach got a hold of him after he found out he couldn't play baseball anymore and turned a wild hook into a little baby fade. And Murph up until that point really hadn't played a whole lot of golf, but uh, just a casual golfer. Well, after the coach got a hold of him a year and a half later, he won the U.S. Amateur and the NCAA championship in the same calendar year. So, you know, he was an incredible athlete. He was also a pool shark and could have been uh, in another era, maybe quite the quite the hustler on the pool table. So we had a lot of fun hanging around that pool table and, and uh, learning to play a little pool through Murph against some of the other tour players. And more often than not, uh, Murph would win. I, I bet he would uh, pad your uh, your allowance for the week if you guys were partners. Uh, a good way to make a little bit of money there. Um, so you, you you mentioned, obviously, uh, your your upbringing in the game with your father and and obviously your your daughters are playing sounds like you're the perfect person to ask this question to you know what makes the the best golf parent i mean i'm sure you're seeing a lot of other parents just with uh that are around uh the game because of uh because of your daughter and you're just seeing a lot of you know parents trying to do the right thing for their kids there's probably a lot of people that are listening that that are in a similar situation where they have kids that are just starting with the game or they're starting to see some success did you have a conscious uh approach or or what was kind of your mindset with introducing the game to to your girls well i just kind of let it come to them to be honest um our oldest daughter, who's who's playing in university now, she grew up. She probably played less junior tournaments than most of her counterparts. Um, I can remember, you know, Dave Stockton did this with his sons, and I think it was wise. You know, there some of these guys are big believers that it's still very healthy to play multiple sports, especially when they're at a young age, so they can really develop hand-eye coordination and and kind of build an athletic body across all sports. And if they if they by chance take to golf at an early age, that's great. Uh, but do everything you can to make it fun. I remember with our daughter, Alexa, every time we were having the most fun on the golf course, even at a very early age, you know, we sometimes would say, okay, we got to go now trying to leave it, you know, leave the taste in their mouth that they want more of it. I see an awful lot of parents spending a lot of time with their kids on the golf course until the kid just can't take it anymore. And, and sometimes they're leaving in tears and that's, that's, you know, that leaves a bad taste in their mouth when they leave the golf course. So sometimes when we were having the most fun, um, we'd, we'd say, OK, we got to go. You know, we'll come back, but we got to come back in a couple of days or come back tomorrow. You know, leave trying to leave them wanting more, um, but just keeping it fun, really. I think with the Tiger effect, you know, not that long ago, it brought so many parents and families, non-golf families into the game, which was fantastic. But a lot of these families does, didn't have much experience in the game of golf, and they tended to treat it like every other sport. And so you do have now a lot of parents in the game that are arguably over-involved in their child's golf. Um, you know, let the kid go out there by themselves sometimes and just explore and goof around and, you know, play three holes with one club and see what kind of shots they can, you know, creatively come up with. And, and I, I wish we saw a little bit more of that. Um, so I, I think, uh, you know, if I could offer up anything to any parent, which we've done a lot of, but it'd be those two things. It'd be, 
you know, don't take a, don't take away all the other sports from the child at too young of an age. Uh, even though some of the books you read and modern coaching may not suggest that. Um, I think you want to, you know, the saddest part is when you see these kids start the game, they play it for a while and then they stop playing. And one of the beautiful things about the game is how long you can play it and how many people you can meet along the way across all different ages. And uh, we've seen it with some of Alexa's friends already that, uh, you know, they get their college scholarship and then halfway through college or right after college, they never touch a club again. And that's, that's not what you want to see. Um, it's too, too great of a game that can bring too many great things to your life. And so I think we approached it. Number one, that, you know, we wanted our girls to at least be able to hit the ball and speak the language and learn the lingo and that it would benefit them greatly throughout their life. And if they took it more seriously than that, great. Um, but I would just suggest to parents to keep it fun. And the end goal is that you want these kids playing the game for the rest of their life. Even if that means it's only once or twice a month, that's perfectly fine. Yeah, I can I can imagine that the uh, and that's that's very well said. But I I can I can imagine that the the balance now. I mean, you have social media where everything has to be so immediate and so uh, immediately rewarding and immediate gratification, and constantly posting a status. And golf, it's you're it's really a long grind and should be a long enjoyable journey. And then you know, there's that aspect of the way society is too with kids. And then also, you, you see that there's a lot more of these um, academies that are popping up where it seems that the kids are playing all day long, all year long, whether it's in Florida or Arizona or California, or Texas, and just the constant involvement with the game. Um, I mean, how does a parent not go down that road and go down maybe choose the the road you're suggesting of just kind of backing off a little bit, letting the game come to the kids instead of just thrusting the in, them into it. It's a great point you bring up and it's absolutely true. But the, you know, the bottom line is it's a big business now. These academies are big businesses um, and, they're, and they're expensive. The AJGA, which I grew up playing and was very active in, it's just grown exponentially and now it is a big business. It's one of the reasons I'm such a big fan of the State Golf Association here in Florida, the FSGA, is because they've got a junior tour, the Florida Junior Tour, that rivals any junior tour in the world, including the AJGA. So you've basically got the AJGA of Florida right here in your backyard around the state. And I would, again, encourage parents to take advantage of that. I've seen too many parents that spend you know, $30,000 a year uh, taking little Johnny around to all four corners of the country playing in AJGA tournaments or other junior tournaments when realistically they'd be better off playing half the number of tournaments and staying home and practicing a bit more and having fun and getting a little bit more creative with the game. But the business of junior golf now and college golf, you know, the parents are consumed with point systems and rankings and college scholarships, but there's not much of a point in, in spending $30,000 a year playing junior tournaments, you know, to wind up with a $10,000 college scholarship. <laughs> the numbers don't quite work. Sure. Uh, and, 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 and I'm not a math work. major, and even I followed that really clearly. <laughs> even, so. even you, even you, Ben, could get that one. No, but that's the that's that's an an issue. And and along the way, uh, in doing so, I think more often than a lot of people realize, they almost turn their child, you know, away from the game to some degree. I think you'd be surprised with the number of great golfers that even to this day still enjoy other sports and enjoyed some other sports and activities and recreations as they were kids growing up. And I think it's healthy. You know, I think if you talk to anyone in the Nicholas family, they would tell you the same thing. 
Um, I know, I know Jack himself played a lot of different sports growing up. Um, you know, you see Matt Kuchers of the world still playing tennis while they're on the road at other tour events. So you need a, the Stocktons were big proponents of this too. They played a lot of other sports, did an awful lot of fishing and hunting, and you just need that. Um, sometimes you don't need to grind out putting practice for hours on end. Sometimes a really good 15 minutes is, uh, you know, can be more beneficial. So I know that's a little counterintuitive to the current methods and 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 i'm no real expert i just uh this is what i've heard from so many others through the years uh from the people that are still enjoying and playing the game at a high level uh throughout their life well i to to your point i don't think anyone is is can be an expert it's to each their own but i think you definitely have the great experience to draw from especially with your your obviously successful upbringing with the game and and your your girls that are succeeding and enjoying it as well so it's it's just very interesting to see uh to see how these kids are handling it and also how these parents are handling it um so before we get to uh to uh, your oldest daughter Alexa, and where she's playing golf right now, because that's that's really a fascinating story. Uh, I want to get back a little bit to where you played your college golf. Um, so you said basically that your 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 father and your godfather Bob Murphy were teammates at UF. So I'm going to go ahead and assume that's where you ended up as well. Well, it's a good guess. It wasn't it wasn't forced on me, that's for sure. Um, I was real close to going to a couple of other schools, Wake Forest being one of them. I had a very good uh, friend uh, that went there and, and I was very close to signing with Wake and kind of at the last minute changed my mind and went to Florida for proximity to home reasons. And uh, the college coach there was a very good player at the time. And I thought that the last minute, you know, maybe maybe you could learn a little bit more from a good player. And now I look at it almost the opposite that, you know, the, some of the great college coaches I do know now don't even know a whole heck of a lot about the game to be quite honest they're just good people great organizers great motivators and offer up a really great support system we had a great i played my best golf probably as a junior so i was fortunate because i had a you know some options and um went to florida we had a very good uh collegiate team there they had a particularly good run but uh i left there you know in in you know, things had changed for me a little bit. I wasn't uh, playing that great by the time I left, even though our team had won a couple SEC championships and won national title. But um, I left there not really knowing what kind of direction I wanted to head in and uh, was fortunate to meet my wife uh, in college and uh, got out of school and worked in the golf business for a few friends of my father for a year or two and tried to figure out what I was going to do and then uh, went to find went into finance at Merrill Lynch, where I've been ever since. And it's been a it's been a great ride, uh, but no, Florida wasn't forced upon me. But back then, you know, they were known as one of the you know, premier collegiate programs, and people always thought you had to go to a Sun Belt state to play good golf in college. And it's been fun to watch that change over the years. And now some of the great programs are up north. Mike Small and his program in Illinois being one of them. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's definitely looking like that. It's reaching all corners. You're seeing, uh, you know, Oregon obviously doing great, and and of course you have the the teams out in California and uh, Stanford and and uh, and Cal doing fantastic as well. Um, well, so- well, these these collegiate programs have such great indoor facilities now, and this goes back to the point earlier a little bit that, and I would offer that up to parents of children considering to play collegiate golf as well, and that is that, you know, there's something to be said for being in a program up north where in a way you're forced away from the game a little bit during those winter months. So it gives you a little bit of a break. So you, you come back fresh and maybe you've been working out in the gym and you're strong and 
you're not injured and you're, you know, excited to get back on the golf course and compete again. And, uh, you know, there's something to be said for that. No, that's, that's an excellent point. And, uh, obviously with indoor facilities, it's, it's less, uh, you know, it's less wear and tear. It's more concise practice and saving a lot of time. So you get much more done, uh, in a quicker amount of time. So that's an excellent point. So now your parent, now your father, your, your girls are, are getting into golf and your oldest Alexa is, is doing great in junior golf and she's, she's playing all of her stuff around, around Boynton Beach and, and succeeding. And now it's that time where you, you gotta, you know, you gotta send your little girl off to school and, you know, how did that process take shape and, and what school did she choose? Yeah, I'll let you take this one because this is, this is great. <laughs> we joke we were trying to find a school farther away but the only thing we could come up with was st andrews scotland so not quite not quite true but um she's a great kid and has always been uh brave enough to do something a little bit different and she had a nice uh junior golf career locally and regionally and had some nice options and was considering rollins and some other really nice schools with nice programs and nice coaches and we were on a, um, a trip to Scotland playing golf, and a friend of ours, Graylin Loomis, was at the University of St. Andrews, and he was kind enough to uh, meet up with us when we were in St. Andrews, and he showed us around a little bit, and it started to pique Alexa's interest in possibly going to school there, and she's been the odd sort probably through our family and our extended family of kind of appreciating all facets of the game and always being interested in the architects of the game and the history of the game a little bit more than most uh, young kids. And so St. Andrews piqued her interest a little bit, and we talked to her about what a nice reputation the school has. Well, shortly thereafter, the, the golf program there caught wind of the fact she has an interest in going to school there. Well, they've never had a young girl go there as a freshman from the United States to play on the golf team, quite honestly, as far as they can figure. And as long as they can remember, and let alone a little girl from South Florida who grew up in the, you know, warm weather, weather and sunshine. So they expressed a real nice interest in her. And like a lot of things, when someone expresses an interest in you, your interest might peak a little bit. So it's been a real win-win. And I think she's, advertise the program in some nice ways and uh, already there's a couple other young girls from uh, the U.S. going to school there to play golf as freshmen and uh, I think Alexa's learned an awful lot just from the international experience and being in that magical town I know you've been there Ben a number of times and appreciate it greatly and it's another thing we have in common and uh, so it's been it's been very nice and, and with today's technology with FaceTime and Skyping and everything else uh, we don't miss a beat. Her sisters, uh, you know, speak to her almost every day via FaceTime. So it's been a great experience for her. She's third year already. It does go by quickly. And uh, and they're growing that program. It's very interesting. You know, you've got this 600-year-old university in the University of St. Andrews, and you've got it right there in the town of St. Andrews, the home of golf. And in the university's 600 years, they've never given a golf scholarship. So quite a bit different than here in the U.S. And they just started uh, this Arnold Palmer scholarship and hadn't given it to anyone. And uh, Alexa was fortunate to be the first recipient of that Arnold Palmer scholarship at the University of St. Andrews. And so that was a nice honor that they bestowed on her and and she was able to go to uh, Bay Hill to meet with Mr. Palmer personally and play golf there. Um, this was a, about two years before his uh, his passing. So, you know, already that's been just incredible experience after incredible experience for her. 
Yeah, I, I can't imagine what that must be like when she uh, when she graduates and she goes for a job interview and on her resume there's St. Andrews and Arnold Palmer scholarship on there. I don't know how many doors she's not going to be able to pick that lock to. Um, and and also as a as a golf dad, I mean, I mean, I know it. I know it didn't go down this way, but if you forced her into it, is anyone really going to get upset at you about that? I mean, you, there, I mean, you gotta you gotta go visit your kid in St. Andrews. <laughs> Who's going to argue about that? I mean, just. So, well, we had to we had, we had to we had to convince everyone. I was trying to tell everyone that there's uh, four mandatory parents weekends each year at University. Oh, of oh I would. <laughs> if you need anyone to get mandatory. creative with excuses, I mean, I think you know you got to check those dorms because some of them have like asbestos. So you got to go over there, you know, at least monthly to make sure it's okay. That's right. I mean, yeah, it's well, your you're... it's your little girl. I mean, come on. That's right. That's right, honey. I gotta go. I gotta go check on Alexa. I'm doing. A, I'm trying to be a good father. That's I. <laughs> I mean, just, just print business cards and just hand that to anyone that, that questions you and then you're all set. So, well, that's uh that has to be uh, incredible. And then you also mentioned, um, you know, you mentioned, uh, Graylin Loomis and, um, you know, he and, and Rue McDonald are doing the Scottish travel, Scottish golf podcast, which I've listened to several times. And I think Alexa's doing a blog for them. Is that correct? Alexa's done a bit of writing for Graylin on his blog, which okay. is nice. If, if people just Google hammer in the links, uh, it'll pull right up, uh, connect to his blog and flow through to her articles. And most of her articles are about uh, being an American student in the town of St. Andrews and, and, uh, and her experiences on the golf courses and the university there. So uh, anybody even going to visit uh, Scotland to play golf, especially the town of St. Andrews, they might find uh, a number of things on that website and on that blog of interest. And that's, uh, again, hammer at the links, hammer and the links. If they Google that, it'll pull right up. I know you're friends with Rue and Graylin and they do a great job. And, uh, and, uh, that's one reason why we're all excited for you in this podcast as well. Oh, well, thank for, and I'm definitely going to put the, uh, put all those links in the show notes. So everyone listening on the podcast will have all those links on, on the, uh, on the show notes of the podcast, so you can get to that uh, easily, and and we'll see if we can get Alexa on this uh, on this show at some point. So so we're we're gonna reluctantly peel away from St. Andrews and get back over here uh, to what you're doing now. Uh, as you said, you're you're with Merrill Lynch, been with them for for quite a long time. Um, you know, once you kind of got out of school and got into, into your professional career, did you find yourself getting a, a greater appreciation for the game and competing, or or Kind of what what's your relationship with golf been for the last you know 10, 15 years? Well, I had a lot of great experiences playing some amateur events and invitationals around the country early on. I did that as our kids got a little bit older. I got to be a little bit tougher. I've actually played you know very little competition in the last many years, but uh, even if it's just once or twice a year at a at an invitational or a club event, they're special and. It's again, as you well know, Ben, you're, you're meeting great people. Some of these, some of the venues of these, uh, uh, of these events and these invitationals are some of the best clubs in the country and in the world. And, and so I have a great appreciation for the clubs that are willing to host these types of events and keep these traditions alive because a lot of these events do date back many, many years, whether it's, you know, the, the Travis at the garden city men's club in New York or, the Coleman at Seminole and some of the other premier events. It's just always a privilege to be on the grounds of those clubs. And, uh, and so that's been the most fun. 
you know, there've been a few FSGA events, which I, you know, again, like I said earlier, I'm just a big fan of the Florida State Golf Association and they run events as professionally as anyone. And um, so we're very fortunate here in the state of Florida, you know, we've got 1,200 or 1,300 clubs around the state. You've got more golf courses in this state than any other state in the country. You've got 120 courses in Palm Beach County, more golf courses than any county in the nation. And uh, we're just very fortunate to be living in Southeast Florida and, and have access to these types of events on a year-round basis down here. Well, and you mentioned uh, FSGA. You actually have uh, some victories with your uh, as a mixed team, and I believe you've won at least once with with Alexa. Um, it, it, has there been more than one victory there, or is it just with just one? Uh, I believe it's four times with Alexa, the state mixed team championship, which has been great fun. And uh, we don't make it every year based on her schedule, but um, we've had great fun with that and. She's carrying the load uh, most most years. That's okay, so she's so, so see, I'm glad you brought that up. So so she is now. When did she become the A player on the team? Like like I'm sure when you started, she, you know, I mean, you got to have some great stories. I would imagine when you guys first started, and and you were kind of carrying carrying load. When did you kind of feel that things were shifting there? Where you're like, oh, okay, yeah, she's she's the A player. I think it was three years ago when we were in the final round and we were behind and struggling a bit and she holed a long bunker shot for Eagle on the 17th hole and we ended up winning by one. Uh, I think that's when she became the A player. <laughs> <laughs> and, and is she shy about reminding you of this or is she, uh, or, or, or uh, no? Oh no. You know, and as most parents would be this way too, it, that's what you want. You know, I, I, when she takes me around the golf course and beats me, I love it. Uh, whether it's in a putting contest or a chipping contest or nine holes or whatever it is, it's, it's wonderful, but we have some good competitions, but I think, you know, again, the key is for us, we don't take it too seriously. And, you know, as a lot of amateurs know, or reinstated amateurs, especially that we're playing for a living at one point, um, when you, when you play, like it doesn't matter and, and you play like it's not your job, it's amazing how often uh, you play better. And, uh, so, that's that's another lesson for a lot of people out there, I believe, is if, you know, come up with creative ways that fit you personally to keep it fun and to not take it too seriously, because oftentimes that's when you play your best golf. Couldn't have been said any better. You're, you're 100% right with that. Um, so so you've you've done a lot of uh, traveling with invitationals and, and playing amateur events. Obviously, golf and, and the business world go, go hand in hand. Uh, you received quite a <laughs> quite an interesting honor. So Golf Digest, I, I did my research. Golf Digest, about I guess it's ten years ago now, came out with their their top 150 uh, golfers in the uh, in the financial world. And you know we got a couple uh, couple little names at the top. You know, no big deal. We got like a, a Trip Keeney, who's won the U.S. Mid Am, and uh, you know famously lost to Tiger in the U.S. Amateur. I believe it was. Um, it wasn't his last. I think it was. I think it was the second, right after Marucci and right before Steve Scott. And then you got uh, you know Sean Knapp, who just won the U.S. Senior Amateur, and uh, Brent Dorman, a Florida guy up in Ocala, which I actually played with a couple weeks ago. And then there's really? yeah, yeah, it did. He's 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 still kicking uh, everyone's butt. So don't don't uh, don't sleep on Brent Dorman. Um, and then number four, um, Kevin Hammer, Merrill Lynch. So you were tied for fourth with a plus three handicap how much grief did you get from from colleagues and co-workers that you were in a uh, in golf digest as was basically the top five golfers in the financial world it was it was uh, pretty funny and that we didn't really know anything about that and all of a sudden it came out and i forget which friend i heard about it 
from first. But um, the the first thing I think about when I think about that list and that article in Golf Digest is that that was, like you say, about 10 years ago. And shortly after that article came out, uh, the financial world was kind of falling apart uh, back around 2008, obviously. Sure. And, it, uh, and so it was funny because this wasn't it wasn't so funny, actually, but uh, they were initially going to make a big deal about this article, uh, even within the firm. And we went to did a couple of interviews and that sort of thing. And the, the publicists were going to, you know, put this out there and, and it, it, everything switched and overnight, it seemed like. And all of a sudden, if you played golf and golf was a part of your life, and especially if you were a good golfer, uh, you know, that that was not looked favorably upon. So they scrapped everything and it, it went quiet. So I'd actually forgotten about that until you just mentioned it. So you did do your research. But uh, no, it's like a lot of things. It was a goofy, goofy little list that uh, can say a lot of different things but um i wish i still played to a plus three that's for sure it'd be nice yeah i, I think we all i think we all hope for that yeah. um, as you know even if you play at a plus three those handicaps don't travel well so no they sure don't uh, you don't no. you don't get invited to many member guests as a plus three yeah no no uh, <laughs> uh yeah a lot of those are uh, uh the new math or creative math or uh fake news or whatever you want to call it but uh but uh yeah well, I was just curious what that must have been like with that list coming out and having coworkers saying, "Oh, not really uh, spending a lot of time at the office, uh, uh, Mr. Hammer." So, yeah. well, you know, that goes back to I can say, I can think of a lot of the guys you mentioned on that list are old friends, and and uh, one of them was a, a a great teammate of mine in Brent Dorman. But uh, some of the other guys on that list, or if you made the similar list today, uh, there are an awful lot of reinstated amateurs that were there were average mini tour players that now that they're back to playing amateur golf and they're playing less golf, it goes back to my previous statement. They're, they're now playing some of the best golf of their life. And so it's funny how when it, when it's not your job, uh, you know, you sometimes can play better. So there's an awful lot of good players out there um, that on any given day can really put up a nice number. But as you and I know, it's a different deal to put up uh, four in a row in a, in a tournament atmosphere. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So we mentioned again that you're, you're at Quail Ridge and um, and I've like I said I've been there for the last four summers and, and really enjoy it and obviously uh, they are undergoing a massive quest for a new clubhouse and it's currently under construction and should be completed I would say at least by the end of the year um, you know we're we're recording this episode uh, actually we're on uh, we're on Halloween so we're we're, we're recording this toward the end of October we're looking forward to that new clubhouse being built give me your thoughts on where you see country clubs kind of going for the next 10 or 15 years how are they going to maintain their uh, memberships uh, attract new members with the, the the way like I said the way society is with you know a tons of different entertainment options especially in South Florida um, how are you going to get young people what's your thoughts on country club living it's a great question, and it's one a lot of people are trying to figure out if there's some kind of magic formula, right? I think I'm a big believer that here in South Florida and Southeast Florida, we're a little bit of a different animal in that there's still so many people that want to come from everywhere to this area, at least part of the year. And there's a certain percentage of those people that want the safety and security of a, a country club environment. Uh, but for most uh, around all parts of the country and the world for that matter. That's a big question. The one you bring up. And I think they're going to, you know, other than the, the true golf clubs that have a, the pedigrees that, you know, can't be argued with and are always going to be popular to a certain niche. Those are few and far between for the vast majority of clubs. 
they've got to reinvent themselves a little bit uh, or quite a little bit and become uh, a little bit of something to everyone. Um, you know, they, they got to make sure the wives are happy and the kids are taken care of and there's activities for them. You got to believe there are more clubs that are going to come out with, um, you know, different options for golf, you know, whether it's great practice facilities or great short game areas or a short course or a putting course uh, or six hole options. All of those, I think, are going to play a part going forward. You know, a, a, a clubhouse, the clubhouse you mentioned here at Quail Ridge, you know, this like a lot of clubs that were built in the same era of the 60s and 70s in South Florida, it was of the same ilk. It was the original developers clubhouse that had been band-aided for many, many years. And so finally they get to the point where they can't band-aid it anymore. And they just need to come up with something new, which was a good decision here at Quail Ridge. And one of the things I like about what we're seeing with the clubhouse here is that it, it does look like it has a few amenities that are a bit different than a lot of the other area clubs, whether it's, you know, outdoor bars and outdoor dining or fire pits or whatever the, the options are. I think the clubs kind of try to have to create their own identity. There are a lot of clubs here in Southern Palm Beach County, especially that have this herd mentality and they all kind of copy each other. And somebody's got to be willing to be a little bit different and, and step out there. But, um, you know, you see clubs now with daycare where uh, certain hours of the day where the kids can go and have fun. And so the parents can go play a little golf or play a little tennis or have a meal together. And so, um, you know, Quail Ridge is an interesting animal. It's two golf courses. There's a variety of different, you know, residential components here from small to large. Um, but all these clubs here on Golf Road, Country Club of Florida, Delray Dunes and Quail Ridge were, you know, had a lot of uh, similar history and developers in common and that sort of thing. So uh, each one is uh, a little bit different, but it's it's a great area to be living in and, and we've been enjoying it here. Yeah, I, I'm really fascinated with uh, with where things are going to go for the next, uh, you know, 10, 15, 20 years and how I, I think it's almost a race to see which club is going to set the mark as the most innovative uh, in, in all facets, whether it's it's dining, it's social, it's golf, it's just the entire uh, aspect. I think it could be just a very interesting race to see who wins and who becomes the most dynamic. It's true. And the more the more you realize that things are always changing, you know, they never stay the same for most clubs. And you, what you're seeing is a lot of young people too, 20s, 30s, 40s, maybe any age that are giving up the joining the traditional country club. And for whatever amount of money they're saving on an annual basis in dues, they're doing instead as an option, they're doing two or three trips a year, golf trips with buddies to the stream songs of the world or the Bandon dunes or the Cabot cliffs. So it's been interesting for me to see the, the, the intense, popularity of those types of golf destinations uh, that are public uh, for the core golf group. And I think, I think there's been a theme of that as well. I think one of the reasons they are so popular is that there are so many people still that love golf, um, but aren't doing the traditional join a club and stay at a club for 10 years or more. They're, they're, they're doing the buddies trip option a few times a year instead. Sure. Well, it's going to be, like I said, it's going to be very interesting to see how things go, not just at Quail Ridge, but at, at several other places. Uh, speaking of Quail Ridge, and and I'm still shaking my head. I have I have this in my in my notes here for our for our episode, and I have this written down. I keep every time I look at it, I'm just shaking my head. What is the 100 hole hike? How did you get me to agree to this? And who is it going to benefit? <laughs> 
Well, uh, the 100-hole hike is something that probably a lot of your listeners have just read about or heard about through golf circles. And it was it was started years ago uh, by an individual that came up with the idea of, you know, playing 100 holes or more in one day walking, all walking, hence oh. the word hike, oh. um, to raise money for charity. And so uh, a number of us have been kicking around this idea for a few years, and some of us need to lose a little weight. So we figure this would be a good way to do it. No, it'd be, it's going to be a good way to raise some money for charity. I'm glad you've agreed to do it. Um, we're going to try to do uh, two things. One is benefit uh, the Society of Seniors Foundation, which is based here at Quail Ridge. The Society of Seniors is the home of uh, their home course is Quail Ridge, and they're really the premier senior amateur competitive organization in the country. They're a thousand members strong of core senior amateur golfers. I'm not old enough to play in any of their tournaments yet, but but for some reason I keep uh, wanting to try to support their group i just i just think it's a, a great group of of uh, fraternity of senior amateur golfers and they have a nice foundation they've created where they benefit um, uh, employees of clubs where they host sites and uh, they give scholarships to benefit uh, the education of some of the employees or the employees children that work at these clubs oh, that's great uh, so that's going to be one of the beneficiaries the other one is going to be uh, we're trying to endow a junior tournament here at Quail Ridge. Uh, we host a lot of tournaments here at Quail Ridge uh, from all different ages, all different organizations, but there are always some state junior tournaments held here at Quail Ridge, and we want to endow one of those in Quail Ridge's name so we can continue to, to host junior golfers and have them um, do something a little bit different for them and make sure they have a lot of fun on the golf course. So I thank you for doing it, Ben. And uh, we're going to have oh. a handful of, of, and we're going to be teeing off in the dark and finishing in the dark. I promise you, if we make it. So we'll, uh, we'll see. Can I just, can I just write a check? I mean, can I just throw some money at this? I mean, sure. I mean, that's, that's, wouldn't that's that fine be? Too. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, but I, wait, but I got to do both. I got to do this thing and I got, all right. Well, all right. Now I understand why I said yes. Cause you know, it's, uh, it's the kids and it's, uh, it's the seniors. So it's really hard to, really hard to say that say, say no to them so it's payback time then oh man uh, when and when is this because i might i might need to have you uh maybe we could do a remote broadcast from the hospital beds that we're in after we do this so when are we, when are we doing this again is this in may we're targeting early may for this and it's difficult here in florida for a variety of reasons one is daylight and two is the the, the weather and the temperature so uh, it's not exactly cool in May. Uh, sounds like you're trying to back out, Kevin. So it sounds yeah. like, I mean, these are, this is for the kids. I mean, just let's we'll see. Okay. We'll see who shows up. Oh. We'll see who finishes. <laughs> All right. I'll be there with my team of uh, health advisors and enthusiasts. And, uh, and, and, oh my gosh. All right. So we're doing this early May. It's going to happen. Um, so we're going to do a little segment called uh, the quick bucket. And we're just going to ask a couple random questions couple of them are get asked to every guest. A couple of them are a little bit different. But the first one I have to ask you is, you can give a major championship to any player in history, male or female, alive or dead. They could have no majors. They could have 18 majors. Who would you give that major to? And uh, you don't need to specify which major it is, but give me the person that, that you're going to give a major to. Well, if, if, we're, if, we're, if we're not including the U.S. amateur as majors, which they, they used to be included, I would give one to my godfather, Bob Murphy, just because he was close in a number of them, and I, and I love him so dearly. My other good family friend, Dave Stockton, has two majors to his credit, so that doesn't go. How about Roberto DiVincenzo? Who, That's a great uh, one. You know, who signed for the incorrect card, and, and you know, that'd be, that would tug at your heartstrings a little bit. 
I don't believe he has another major to his credit. No, he had. Oh, he has a he. Uh, he has an open. He has a he? British Open. He he won. A, okay. Yeah, I think it was. I'll have to look it up, but I think it. it well. I think I think you're. I think you're right. I think he may have an open to his credit. So, uh, interesting question, but I'll go with Murph. Okay. Okay. So now let me ask you a follow up on this. Is it st- is it still fair that someone today could still get DQ'd on a scorecard issue? Another good question. You know, with today's technology and you've got more people following groups than ever before and you have official scorekeepers, it's seen, I, could, I could envision the day where the players are not keeping their own score throughout the course of the round at the highest level of professional golf. Uh, however, you know, I'm a traditionalist at heart and you know, it just doesn't seem like it's too much to ask to keep a correct scorecard. Uh, I'm kind of on the fence. I'm I'm kind of with you on that. It's it's the traditional yeah. aspect. It's just when situation like that happen, you just kind of shake your head. So it's one it's one I could see changing over time. Yeah, but I'm not sure I'd be pushing it. Yeah, fair enough. So the other question is, which victory would be better or more substantial, uh, Jack's victory in '86 at the Masters or the fifth Green Jacket of Tiger Woods? Wow, it'd be the, it'd be Tiger Woods winning again, and and maybe win and maybe winning again at at, at any uh, high level, any tour event. Um, Jack, uh, Mister Nicholas, what the longevity of his career? That's one thing I go back to. I think, you know, I, I the longevity of one's career, you've got to add add some value, you know. And that to me is oftentimes why, no matter what happens, I think Jack will will be the greatest player of all time, in my opinion, because I put some some extra account to the longevity of a career tiger. A lot of people say might've been the best from, you know, throughout the game of golf uh, in terms of playing the game throughout 18 holes. But uh, the longevity of Jack's career says a lot. Uh, I think I, I hope, I, I hope, I hope Jack's career stays intact. Let's put it that way. I, uh, I'm, I'm kind of rooting for it to stay. I'm, I'm kind of rooting for his record to stand. I, I've always been a huge fan of, uh, of, of Mr. Nicholas, but it is kind of interesting to see. I, I just, I think everyone wants to see Tiger on the back nine in Augusta on a Sunday going against one of the young guys, just being anywhere remotely close, just to, just to see it happen. It would be incredible. And I, and, and we all know what the TV ratings would be. Oh my gosh. I can't, I just can't even imagine. Yeah. I cannot even imagine what that would be like. And it doesn't really matter which, which young gun it is. In fact, how do you, if you're one of those young guys, how are you not somewhat at least rooting for tiger also? Like it's I know, they have, you know, I know they have that killer instinct, and they're just once they get out there, they're all business. But I don't think any one of them could avoid just kind of quietly back in the you know in the corner of their brain rooting for Tiger to do something amazing. I'll tell you a quick story, which this makes me this question makes me think of. We're talking about longevity of careers. Is Tom Watson and his uh, near victory at Turnberry uh, was it two thousand nine maybe? So long story short. Uh, I'm watching Turnberry, the final round, watching Tom hit his nine iron or whatever short iron it was into 18 bounces over the green. Or watching, I'm watching with my father on television. And as you realize in the course of the playoff that, that Tom is not going to win, you know, we're almost crying like probably half the country was in front of the TV. It was just emotional to watch. Well, Mr. Watson and Murph and my father are old friends and Mr. Watson used to come to Delray Dunes and rent a place each winter for a few win- a few times and so he could play some warm weather golf and we would play some golf with him and it was a great experience. Well, fast forward to this, you know, near victory at Turnberry 
we're watching it on TV. The telecast ends. Tom Watson finishes second, loses to Stuart Sink in the playoff. My father goes to the computer and sends Tom an email. And I'm thinking, you know, there's no way in the world Tom is ever going to respond to my father, number one. Uh, he's going to get 1,000, a million emails, who knows. And I never really figured out what my father said to his friend Tom Watson. But the next morning, early in the morning, my father gets a response from Tom Watson via email. And my father forwards it to me. And it simply said, now you think of all the things that Tom Watson could have been thinking you know, how unlucky I got, you know, all these things about how close he was to winning the British Open at an unprecedented age. And he simply said to my father, he said, Dear Lori, thank you so much for your kind comments. It's a great game we all share, isn't it? That's amazing. I don't know how uh, how else to end the episode, but that is a fantastic story. And uh, I really appreciate you sharing that with us and all your insights on the game, especially with the uh, introducing the game to young people uh your, your daughters and just you know the people around that are listening it's 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 a great game like you said and we need to take care of it and really grow it with the with the youth of today kevin i really appreciate it it's uh, it's gonna be great i'm sure i will see you before the hundred hole hike uh i'll see you soon and again thanks for being a, a guest on the show it's my pleasure it, it truly is a great game that we all share like mr watson said i wish you a lot of luck with your podcast and i look forward to tuning in and uh, give me a call and we'll play soon sounds good thanks kevin all right take care thanks and there you have it thanks so much to kevin hammer this week's guest don't forget follow us on instagram subscribe on apple podcasts and we'll see you next week thanks